hey, does anyone want to learn French with me? Because I've decided in 2024 that I want to learn French. And thankfully, I have Rosetta Stone. So you better hop on it so we can learn French together. Rosetta Stone has the amazing true accent feature, which is so helpful, especially in French. You get feedback on how well you're actually pronouncing words. Plus, they have 25 languages to choose from. So if you're not going to learn French with me, I'm sure you can find some other people who will learn a language with you. But I'm on the French team this year. Come on, folks, join me. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, and that's why we drink listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash drink. That's rosettastone.com slash drink. Hello, everybody, and welcome to And That's Why We Drink, a paranormal and true crime podcast. But today, we have a very special episode for you. We actually have a special guest. We have Hannah Smith, who is the host of The Opportunist, which is a great podcast that tells true stories of regular people who turn sinister by embracing opportunity. Ooh. I know. Season one uh, followed the story of Sherry Schreiner, an internet cult leader who ran her cult entirely on Facebook in many ways a precursor to QAnon. You know if you've listened to (laughs) all three of the lengthy episodes I put out on QAnon that I'm a big fan. So uh, season two follows Robert Courtney, a Kansas City pharmacist who carried out a decades-long fraud that became the FBI's top priority in 2001 prior to 9-11. And today, Hannah is going to be telling us the story of Robert Courtney for the very first time. Uh, We are so excited. Welcome, Hannah, to our interesting (laughs) crossover uh, extravaganza. (laughs) And also, thank you for uh, being willing to uh, be a part of a crossover with us. It's just uh, very, very wonderful. So thank you for being here and also letting us on your show. Oh, yes. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me and for coming on my show. I'm really excited for this crossover and we'll see. Yeah, ready to get into it. Awesome. Oh, yeah. So um, we're going to be also just so everybody knows, we're going to be guesting on a bonus episode of The Opportunist. Also out today where the three of us, we all picked different stories and or at least Christine and I picked different stories. Did you pick a story too, Hannah? I did. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. perfect. So we're all going to be uh, telling each other our stories. And I can tell you that I have a very juicy one. I'm very excited to share it. So <laughs> hop on over there and um, and go check it out. Go check out The Opportunist. So tell us about Robert Courtney. What is this about? All right. First of all, I'm I'm also a huge fan of your show. So thank you oh, so much. And I, stop, I feel a little stop, nervous stop, stop. telling you this story because I hear you telling each other stories so often. But I'll do my and best. like so stumbling over ourselves and <laughs> yeah. falling down the stairs. And, the secret yeah. is to not be perfect at all. Like to just just get kind of guess your way around, and we'll we'll fill in the blanks with weird with weird uh, rambling. So okay, great, I can do that. Not be perfect, I can definitely do that. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> okay, so Robert Courtney. So Robert Courtney was this Kansas City pharmacist, and you know he was very successful. He was very respected in his community as uh, not just a pharmacist, but an entrepreneur and businessman. He owned two pharmacies in Kansas City, and one of them was in this medical center, the Research Medical Center, and it had a hospital and this pharmacy as well as private oncology practices. He bought the pharmacy in 1986. Yeah. The reason people viewed him as an entrepreneur is that he did this sort of unusual thing with a pharmacy where he promoted himself to cancer doctors in Kansas City as this, a pharmacist that would mix chemotherapy IVs for them. And that... um, yeah, so chemotherapy 
drugs oftentimes come in a powder form, and then you, mm-hmm. uh, based on the prescription, you mix however much of the medicine into these medical saline IV bags. Right. Huh. And yeah, so they're tailor made to the patient, but you have to have a, a stale room to do it. So it's expensive to set up. Also, they're really toxic. So you have to be really careful with handling them. So it, they're kind of like, you know, hard to make. So he just was promoting himself to all the cancer doctors in Kansas City. Like, I'll make all your chemotherapy <laughs> IV bags for you. That actually does sound like quite an entrepreneurial venture there of like, I can do something very few can. It mm-hmm. is a very dangerous task and I'm willing to take the burden on. So I get it. So far, he sounds like an upstanding guy. Yeah. <laughs> so far. Upstanding guy. So far. Also a, also a deacon at his church. Oh, uh, okay. Well, there you, you have know, it. Family man. As we like to say on And That's Why I Drink, a pillar of a the pillar community. A pillar of the community. <laughs> oh, he was he was a very strong pillar. Yeah, usually yes. it doesn't end too well. So Pillar we'll to killer, as we say. So. Pillar Ooh. to killer. I love that. That's, that's perfect. And as you know, things are definitely going to go awry. Um, so yeah, so he was doing this allotted in the community until 2001. There was a, a, an oncologist, Dr. Verda Hunter, who was in that same center and she used Robert Courtney to mix all of her, her chemotherapy IVs. And one day at a sales luncheon, this guy named Daryl Ashley, who was a sales rep for a specific chemotherapy drug, Gemzar, he would bring lunch in for the nurses and like, ask about how the drugs were doing, pitch new, you know, try to sell, get them to buy new new drugs from um, his company. And one of the nurses said, I bet you're getting a lot of commission from Gemzar because our office is using so much of it. And he was sort of surprised by that. And long story short, he went on this investigation to try to figure out how much gems are that Robert Courtney was buying. Robert mm-hmm. Courtney was buying it from this wholesaler, so not directly uh. from his company. And when he finally got the report from the pharmacist about how much, you know, Gemzar he was buying, like nothing added up. Like the he, the numbers weren't right. The price that was listed wasn't right. And he was just like, something is going on. And I like something weird is going on. And then he started to think back about conversations he'd had with Dr. Hunter's nurses where they would mention things like sometimes we get the IV bags from from Robert Courtney and they're like half full. Mm. Huh. Okay. Very fishy. There were things that were like, they could have been red flags, but there was always ex- like explanations like, yeah, they're tailor-made, so sometimes they're a little bit different in amounts. People weren't having toxicities from their chemotherapy treatment. Like a lot of patients weren't losing their hair or getting sick. But mm. at the same time, all of these chemotherapy drugs were always advancing. And so like they were getting better and better and like the, the side effects, you know, they were, were getting like less extreme. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like a huge red flag. But when the sales rep like started like crunching the numbers and then thinking back about these conversations, he started putting it together that something was going wrong. And eventually he realized that Dr. Verda Hunter was purchasing way more Gemzar from Robert Courtney, the pharmacist, than Robert Courtney was buying from the wholesaler. Mm, Uh, Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So he started to suspect that Robert Courtney was diluting the chemotherapy mm-hmm. meds. Dr. Verda Hunter stepped in. She got a sample of a chemotherapy IV bag from the pharmacist tested by a lab, and it came back as only having one-third of the prescribed dose of medication. Oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. And problem. so she's... Yeah, big problem. So she tipped off the FBI, and then what followed was this 
enormous FBI investigation. The biggest, the, the number one priority of the FBI in 2001 up until 9-11. Right. And they conducted two sting operations with Dr. Hunter. She worked with the FBI, ordered, you know, chemotherapy medications from um, Robert Courtney. Oh, my gosh. And, I love a good sting operation. Right? <laughs> the there were undercover. two of them? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is definitely, like, the FBI investigation of this story is, like, really fun and impressive. Jeez. Like, Can I ask why there were two? Like, why didn't why wasn't the first one a successful sting operation? Do we know that? Or not to put you yeah. on the spot there if you don't know. Well, yeah, no. So they did one initially, and that one came back. The tests came back. And all, I think they tested six bags. All of them came back subpotent. The highest percentage was like 50%, and they were varying levels of percentage. The lowest one was almost 0%, like a trace of the medication. Yeah, which means that if that was a real patient with cancer, they would have just been given like saline. That's beyond. Wow. Yeah. But then when they, they basically, the reason they did two, so they set a date to raid the pharmacy and they needed to get, they needed to connect Robert Courtney with the, with with like the subpotent bags because he had multiple pharmacists working. So they needed to know that he was the one that prepared Mm -hmm. it. So they did a second sting the day of the sting operation. And Mm. so, or, or the day of the raid. Okay. And so what they did is, FBI agents approached Robert Courtney and asked to interview him. They went out to their car and they identified themselves as federal agents and then said they were investigating a pharmacist. And Robert Courtney was like very, you know, agreeable and he answered their questions and they asked him the prescriptions that Dr. Verda Hunter ordered today, who prepared them? And he said, I did. And so when those medications came back the next day as all subpotent, that was essentially a confession because he had admitted that he is the one that did that. And what's really bizarre to me about the raid is that he didn't suspect anything. FBI agents came to his pharmacy and started asking him questions, and he just didn't even suspect anything, which makes me think that he never thought he was going to get caught. Yeah, was he just that confident or that he was going to get away with it? Yeah, he just thought... Yeah, he just thought he would never get caught. Um, I feel like we see that all the time, too. Of like, you're either really dumb or like so confident in yourself that we just recorded it. We just recorded two episodes yesterday where like both of the stories that Christine covered, (laughs) they the people were just like wildly overconfident with the fact that like they just couldn't possibly get caught to like like a degree where they got themselves in trouble because they weren't like had you been a little more paranoid, maybe you would have actually gotten away with it and you would have (laughs) been right. Yeah, it's shocking. So essentially, they had a confession, and they convinced him to come in and give a Mirandai's confession. Mm -hmm. The first thing he said to the FBI was, he said, yes, I did do this, but I've done it only for a year, and there's only 34. Yeah, I've only done it for (laughs) a year. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Only 365 days of prescriptions are wrecked because of me. Okay. Yeah. And he said only 34 patients, all Dr. Hunter's patients, uh, had been affected and he said the reason he did it was that he had pledged $1 million to his church and he couldn't what? Like, pay it. That's an interesting explanation. <laughs> okay. And so he started, hmm. what he would do is he would get like one dose of a chemotherapy drug that came in the powder and he would split it among like four yeah. different bags. Uh, ration it, like try to uh-huh. make, it, make it last. Oof. 
but then he would charge the doctors full price for each one. And Oof. so uh, one estimate said that he could make like $3,000 profit per prescription. Whoa. And uh, sorry, this is because he promised he would make a million dollars for his church or something? Like, why would you do that if you didn't have a million dollars? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what he initially said. But what's interesting about him is that he he was very in he was very into his appearance and he wanted to not just be successful, but appear <laughs> successful, right? Sure. Had, Say no more. Yeah. Like he, he, he was living in a house that was like seven hundred thousand dollars in Kansas City in the nineties. Like that was, you know Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But basically what followed was a huge health crisis because Word got out in Kansas City. All of these doctors were worried about if their, you know, prescriptions had been affected. A lot of people were in the middle of chemotherapy. Right. And they knew their drugs had come from Robert Courtney. And they were trying to figure out, you know, how to move forward with their with their medication. Because you can only have so much chemotherapy. Uh, yeah. mm. There's like a cap because it is so toxic. So it's not like they could just be like, well, we'll just do it again. Right. You know? It's like so carefully regulated already. Wow. I didn't yeah. even think about that. Oh, my gosh. It, some people, you know, immediately started getting their chemotherapy treatments from other places as soon as they heard. And then it was like they had never lost their hair. And then it was like after the first treatment, they like lost their right. hair and got sick. Wow. And so, so it was so mm. diluted that they probably just they really just weren't getting anything out of it medicinally then do we know yeah. i do we know how many people did anyone end up dying because they didn't get treatment for a year we oh. don't know exactly how many people but eventually the eventually the fbi struck a plea deal with robert courtney because they knew that he hadn't just been doing it for a year they subpoenaed his financial records and he was worth like 19 million dollars whoa and wow. Yeah. And so they were like, this has been going on for far long, longer. We need to know exactly what he did and mm -hmm. how he did it. So they struck a plea deal with him. He would serve between 17 and a half and 30 years. And he had to tell them everything he ever did. And so in those conversations, he revealed that he started it in 1988. Oh, my God. He oh started God. it with pills. Ooh. So like he would someone would have a prescription for 30 pills and he would just put 25 pills in. And then no one, they wouldn't notice. And so right. then he started thinking, well, maybe I could do it with IV bags. Oh, my God. And what's really screwed up is that he started doing it with, like, the sickest patients. So people that were, like, stage so four. If, if it didn't work, he wouldn't get caught. Yeah. Like, if, if someone died, it wouldn't go right to him. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. That's so bad. That's so, so bad. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And eventually he was doing it to any medication he could. They think that, as far as they can tell, over 4,000 people were affected. Um, oh. oh, my yeah. God. And over, like, 72 medications were identified that he had tampered with, including, like, fertility drugs and oh, um, shit. drugs for multiple sclerosis. I mean, of, of all people to take advantage of, like... Especially wow. in, in the name of your church. Like, this is, don't worry, I had to do it for right. the church, quote unquote. I did it for Jesus. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. Well, what's even more screwed up is that his father was a pastor and he grew up, like, going going to these uh, church services, uh, tent revival mm -hmm. um, services all over the South and the Midwest, and he, and which were very focused on, like, miraculous healing powers right. of God. Mm. But anyway... 
he eventually just said that he did it for greed. And it, at least he you admitted know, it. Hey, yeah, hey, be honest. That's step one. Yeah. But he did it for like family, you know, uh, friends and people in his community, his neighbor. The only time that he got upset, one of the F- I, one of the FBI agents I talked with, she said she asked him if he diluted his own mother's chemotherapy because she had experienced ca- uh, cancer. And he got upset and he was like, I would never do that. Oh, come um, on. Oh, give me a break. Also, That's like, are you far. kidding me? You were doing this to people that were going through the same thing as your own mother. And you were like, this is fine. Are you kidding me? Right? Okay. Like, t- like, you would think that would give you a heart. At least you'd pick, like, a different ailment you weren't so personally, like, <laughs> invested in, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh. So wow. he was a pretty, pretty screwed up guy. Uh, <laughs> but, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pillar, pillar to killer, we it's st- stuck true again. It never fails yeah. us. That same pillar to killer. <laughs> I love it. it. It perfectly describes Robert Courtney. We really want the phrase to not be true. Like, right. if, if for some reason, people just keep proving us correct on that, though. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Pillar to Ugh. I don't know what else it could be. Something better. Pillar to pillar. You know. Just say pillar. stay stay a pillar and stop murdering people with cancer. I mean, yikes! I would even yeah. say killer killer to pillar at this point, where like you just go good, you know. But <laughs> I would love to see a case of that killer to pillar. I have I have yet to find one of those. We haven't started that as a catchphrase yet. It hasn't caught on, but in time maybe. In time, yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh, that was so, is that, that was, and so this is going to be your whole second season, you giving more, getting more in depth with the story. Yeah, so we talked, you know, I talked with multiple FBI agents, um, pharmacists, uh, people in the community, many people that are survivors, and many people that had family members that passed away um, as a result of, of his actions. So, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that because 9 11 happened right as, you know, this they were investigating mm-hmm. this case, and it, it really the news had just started to break nationally, and then nine eleven happened. Obviously, everything Oof. shifted, the focus shifted, the FBI's resources right. shifted, and so I think it's still a story that a lot of people don't know. And I think that if it happened at a different time, it would be one of those stories where like we all would know it, you know, because yeah. it was sure. such a big, a big case. Yeah, and wow. not to. Uh... Not to put you on the spot here, but you, so you interviewed a, a lot of people for this series? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have anyone that personally, like, stuck out for you that you feel like you either learned a lot from or, or just had a really good back and forth with? Um, I really enjoyed talking with uh, Melissa Osborne, who was a former FBI special agent, and she worked the case, and she just has a really interesting story. She was a pharmacist herself before joining the FBI. Mm-hmm. And Whoa. so, yeah, so, and she, and she was on the Robert Courtney case. And, um, so I think she was just, just one of those things where she was the perfect person mm-hmm. to right. work the case. She had all this knowledge and she, it was her job to get all the information out of him once he agreed to this plea deal. And so she would have to spend hours and hours in a room with this guy who she knew was a killer. And, um, she has this one moment where she talks about that process and how, he would make like pharmacy jokes to her and try to be like buddy, buddy, like weirdly. Like, and she was like, I had to kind of play along. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Read the room. Read the room. Read the room. You're a killer. You're not a killer anymore, dude. Right. You're no longer a killer. (laughs) We're not cracking jokes anymore. We are on different wavelengths. Yeah. But yeah, she would have to like play along and pretend to be friends with him so that he would reveal more information 
And um, oh, wow. she said she would leave those interviews just feeling sick to her stomach. And so sure. I just have, have a lot of respect for her. And I think that she's really great. And I enjoyed speaking with her. That's got to be hard work, knowing the background of being, in pharma- being a pharmacist and then understanding the job and the role and then having to, quote unquote, be chummy with somebody who yeah. just did it so poorly. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. she must have done she I mean, she really seems like she was meant for that that particular task of like it sounds like an hbo series i know (laughs) right oh my god melissa osborne she'd be like the hero in the story right? yes yeah it feels very mind hunter like um having to get in the head of the person understanding where they come from and it must be tough i can't imagine and to add to it she had a um really good friend that had she had helped her like go through cancer and her friend had passed away right before she joined the FBI. Oh. So she had this whole personal aspect to it as oh well. My God. So for her, you know, oh she God. was really having to deal with all of these intense emotions, but she got the job done like a real hero. Yeah, wow. it seems like that was the trifecta of scenarios that she was meant to be a, a part of the cause for. Wow. Well, mm-hmm. well done hero. for her. I'm <laughs> Congratulations on getting to even speak to her. And then everybody else you clearly went super in depth with with the research so uh very excited to listen to the opportunists and hear you like really get into the nitty-gritty with people yeah i have i think two episodes left of those of season one so i'm almost caught up but it, it's it's just such a good show honestly you do such a great job uh thank you all so much well thank you for coming on and, and giving us a little sneak peek of what season two is going to look like that's very very exciting I uh I'm excited specifically now for the Melissa Osborne episode or <laughs> if, if however she's peppered in so mm-hmm. uh so now we are actually going to go over on to uh the opportunist and we are going me Christine and I are going to tell our stories uh so if you want to check out part two head over to the opportunist feed right now see you there when it comes to buying your first home everyone has questions Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.